and welcome to Soundtrack Showdown, the only podcast that listens to two soundtracks, puts them through a gruelling five-round contest and declares an overall winner. I'm Tristan Kane, and joining me as always is my co-host, the talented electronica artist, music producer and big rig driving imperator in training, Ella Kova. Hey! So that's more than enough about us, let's hear about our contenders. Lately we've been looking at classic scores from some of the esteemed greats of film composing, Herman, Williams, Elfman, Zimmer, but this week we're going a lot more recent with two films from 2015. Tom Holkenberg, aka Junkie XL's score for Mad Max Fury Road. And the score for Sicario by the late, great Johan Johansson. So, before we begin, we have our first real spoiler alert. These are two pretty recent and not as well-known films as the ones we've been talking about lately. So if you haven't seen these films, we have to tell you they're both really good and probably won't be as good after you've heard us talk about them and ruin the endings in this podcast. So if that's you who hasn't seen it, stop now, go off and listen. Yes, you have been warned. So, what's your initial thoughts on these uh, films and scores, Ella? Oh, Mad Max got a real mixture of beautiful and lyrical music with long, progressive, intense action. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a real mix of, like, loud, sort of in-your-face opera, basically. It's like a rock opera, you know, oh, yeah. with a few moments of, like, nice melancholic sort of sadness, and it's very dramatic. Funny, when I went and saw it in the cinema... I literally had to enjoy the the acoustics aspect of it and just kind of let go because I could not understand a word um, during the action scenes because of all the immense loud sort of sound effects mm-hmm. with the loud soundtrack as well. It all meshed together. It all like pretty much it, all it sounded like was just basically just men shouting. Did the did the accents and slang also have an effect on you? Do you know I, what fang it means? No, I don't. What does it mean? <laughs> so to, to fang it means to. Like you're driving a car and you're like you're hooning along and you just go, you know, let's let's fang it. It means to like really put your foot down and go hell for leather. Oh, so like very okay, go to basically go for it then. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think there's an exact English equivalent. It's more of a concept than a than than, than a direct translation. So, sort of key key scene, for example, they're about to go into the storm and I think the the guy who's hanging on the side of Furiosa's truck shouts, "What are we going to do?" And she shouts back, "Fang it." That's that that's fanging it. Oh, okay, now I know what that means. There's a lot of other Aussie slang in there that we can't talk about in a uh, podcast rated PG, unfortunately. Ah, okay, got you. <laughs> so, yep. And then in terms of Sicario, emotionally really got me because it had a very sad ending in the sense that like all these people trying to make a difference and in the end it's, it's futile mm-hmm. at the end of the day. You don't get many films where you feel really helpless yeah. you know, at the end of it. Sort of murky, convoluted sort of an ending where nothing really resolves well, exactly. properly. Exactly, yeah. And you just feel a bit like, well, all that effort for nothing almost, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, what did you think then? Mad Max is a sort of movie, or Fury Road, we should specify, is a sort of movie that generally I don't like, sort of the, the idea of the action film for action sake. Why? Is it, was it just too much or because there wasn't enough a balance between the emotional, dramatic... Normally. No, right. Normally that would be the case. I, I, I find you get a lot of action films where sort of they seem to be more a case of trying to set up action sequences rather than necessarily tell a story. 
But Fury Road was quite special in that regard, in that even though it probably has a greater ratio of action to non-action over the course of the film than most, it manages to tell quite a story at the same time because of how effective it is Mm. at telling story through action and through action sequences and its visual storytelling. We talked about that a bit last week with the scene at the beginning of The Dark Knight, how it's visual storytelling. There's not much dialogue. It doesn't tell you anything about what's going on, but you learn a lot as it goes along. Man Rex Fury Road does that the whole way through. It pretty much never tells you what's going on, which may have even contributed to your confusion about the film in general, in that you don't necessarily know who these characters are, particularly the the villain characters of Morton Joe mm-hmm, yeah. and, and all those people. It doesn't really explain them that much. It just allows you to pick it up as it goes along visually. You, it's definitely one of those films where you go uh, go with the flow. You go on a joyride with it. It's like a roller coaster. You sort of yeah. get on, you can't get off, you just off you go. Yeah. So as a carrier, I only saw for the first time quite recently. It left me a little cold, to be honest. I, I like a lot of what the film was doing. I genuinely like the soundtrack, and I think that's going to come through over the next... Mm-hmm. next hour but yeah you'll probably also hear about my thoughts about the rest of the film as we go along as well when you say it left you cold do you mean in the sense that you didn't get anything out of it or you felt really quite well that was a waste it wasn't a waste but i felt a little unsatisfied with some of the directions it took i think okay interesting so let's get to the face off oh let's see what you got there yeah. well, you did so very good. as per usual we're gonna have five rounds carefully selected to test our contenders this month these rounds will be round one environment round two female characters Round three, action. Round four, production. And round five, impact and legacy. So we're all set, let's go. Round one, environment. Both these films have very distinct settings. In many respects, the world that they're set in and the place that they're set in is almost more significant than the characters involved in the stories. They're also interesting that they're both quite similar. They're both very hot, harsh, forbidding desert landscapes mm, even this if you think like even the cinematography is actually the similar where, the where they use the gold the browns and yellow tones it's yeah quite, if you look at it it's quite similar as well yeah if you creepily watch someone watching this movie through the window the their room would be the same color as they watch both of these films it's probably the the worst possible way to describe that but yeah. but you know what i mean yeah so we'll start with fury road So Fury Road is set in a post-apocalyptic future after a nuclear holocaust, much like the previous three Mad Max movies. So the clip we're about to play and talk about plays over a memorable early scene in the movie as Furiosa is heading into a massive sandstorm.
I mean, I found the storm is coming. That particular track was just really powerful. I mean, that's actually one of my favorite tracks in the album. I don't know how many like thousand different types of drums playing all together at the same time and different rhythms. And the production really brings out this powerful, in-your-face, unstoppable force representing the rig and the pursuit of Immortan Jove. You really get that from the soundtrack. And, you know, I also I love how it then changes to this almost like majestic, heroic and quite noble with the choirs and the horns. You know, it it completely changes the sort of tone of it, doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, whether that's meant to kind of represent Furiosa's intent to save the five wives at whatever cost it is to kind of power through the storm and just hope to get to the end on the other side. That's a good take. I I actually think that that represents the storm. That music. Really? That's yeah. interesting. I kind of, I didn't. When I was listening to, to it, it really made me feel, think about Furiosa and her mm. sort of like, I don't, yeah, it made me think of her as opposed to the actual storm. There is a bit in the track where I remember seeing it with the visuals. I was completely awestruck, you know, when I saw the visuals of the storm and all the colours and it's this massive beast coming at you and, yeah. the, and the rigs are like this tiny. Mm-hmm. And... It, it, it wasn't in the but in the part that we were just listening to. It was a little bit further down near the end. And I just remembered that, like, oh, my God, it's going to engulf me. Yeah. And, you know, and I felt that that music really captured that. And it definitely, like, with the music, the sound effects mm. and the visuals all came well together. It's one, well, yeah, it's one of those magic film moments yeah. that only really film can do, and particularly the, the cinema experience can do of just, just overwhelming stimuli, essentially. Exactly, yeah. That moment was complete, took my breath away, and I felt like, well, everything just fit and completed the scene and just kind of propelled yeah. it so well. So the reason why I say to me it feels like the storm, and it's probably coloured by the fact that certainly when I was learning to do film scoring, that sort of huge horn and, and choir sound over the top and everything, that, that's what we would call the awe and majesty template. And you hear that a lot in films for big, majestic moments, like when the volcano explodes or when the aliens come down and destroy the world or or something like that. That's when you use that stuff, the big horns, the choir. So this huge, dark, almost... We were talking about this quite a bit in the the last episode with Batman, that sort of Mm semi-religious sort of a feel. You get that sort of big church kind of a sound, but in a more cinematic way. And that's usually associated, yeah, with with huge forces beyond man's control, so Mother Nature in in this case. But your your point of it relating to Furiosa is, is I think, a very valid one because I think one of the things that's beginning to establish here, because it's sort of a strong theme of the film, is the idea of the men in the film being all sort of exploitative, exploiting nature, exploiting the resources, old gas town, bullet town thing, but the women being more associated with with nature and more in touch with with the with the world and nature. To a certain extent, I think there is meant to be a relationship between Furiosa and... The storm. And the storm and nature. Mm. And one thing you actually notice when you watch the scene, if you try and sort of watch it closely, is as they're going into the storm and through the storm, Furiosa just pretty much pulls a face mask up and grits her teeth and keeps on trucking literally through the storm. It's the men who are panicking and their little tiny cars getting blown all over the place. No, nothing's going to stop her. Yeah, definitely. And there's definitely an, an element of both her and the storm as being unstoppable forces mm. in, in the in the course of this. Yeah, coming coming face to face almost with each other, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, a rock in a hard place. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on to Sicario. 
So as with Mad Max, this is a scene that comes very early in the film and helps really establish the environment and the world that, that Sicario is set in. Sicario, for ho- hopefully we've already warned off the people who haven't watched the film, but for those who don't know, Sicario is about the border area between Mexico and the United States, in particular the area between El Paso and Juarez, which are essentially one huge town split by the Rio Bravo River. And this track, called The Beast on the album, covers a significant montage as they travel from El Paso, the sort of structured, ordered El Paso, into the somewhat more chaotic Juarez. I mean, that, again, the the title in itself, The Beast, kind of evokes that sensation. Like, do you know there's a scene when the helicopter is going over the the desert? Yes. And, like, the way the dunes and the mountains were formed, it it just made me feel like that looked like some sort of a creature, like some sort of a monster. And the cellos that... They use that, yeah, the double basses and like the, you know the strokes. It's like it reminds you of like a roar, mm. some sort of like a creature roar, and how the percussion, you know, the rhythm kind of slowly starts off quietly and then gradually builds and crescendos and gets clearer and it's like you're getting, it's getting coming closer to you. So it's it's very effective and very daunting and quite grim. Yeah, yeah very grim. Yeah, I read an interview with Johansson where he talked about how this was the first track that he sort of bedded down for the film. This is the first one that he and Villeneuve agreed on as being, okay, that's that's going to be the sound for Sicario. And you can kind of feel that, that it's, it is a, it's a real establishing sound for everything and it permeates everything else through the film. Well, because he said that it's almost... He said that it's meant to kind of represent the sound of the drug tunnels. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah, 
because he said that the idea of working with low percussion and low strings and low brass was intended to create a sound coming from the below. Yeah. You know, so that's why it always makes me feel like it's this monster coming from the deep. Yeah. You know, you're going into his territory. It's a lot like Jaws again, isn't it? Yeah. The deep sounds of the beast that you can't quite see, but you can feel... Its presence. Yeah. And I know that he was very much wanting a score that you didn't so much listen to the themes of and get carried away with that stuff, but that you really felt viscerally. And as you know, low sounds, they reverberate through your body a lot more than, than high ones. So you do really feel this track a lot. I think, yeah, you pulled it off. I think, as you say definitely was very atmospheric then through the rest of the film you feel that as well because he can he brings back particularly that sliding glissando double that descending double bass sound we'll just play the, the clip of it again so you know what we're talking about he'll play that a lot through the rest of the film to sort of signify the coming danger and, and just of the of the area in general and it's really effective so which one do you think is better at establishing the environment and world of the film? Aristocaria for me. Yeah. I think because it stays with me and because the whole point of him trying to evoke the underground and the tunnels and, you know, even if you listen to the soundtrack on its own, you can almost feel like you can feel that you're actually underground there. You're like part of those tunnels trying to breathe, trying to find air and stuff. It's very claustrophobic. Yeah. You know, I found, whereas, yes, um, Mad Max is very bombastic and it's very loud and they did, there was a lot of, you know, he channeled a lot of the metal in influences like from rock and new metal yeah. and stuff to try and to represent the trucks and the rigs and all that. But the Sicario felt more from the, yeah. it kind of, it left more of a, a stain, I yeah. guess. You know, it made me think a little bit more as opposed to Junkie XL's one. What about you? Yeah, I agree. I do agree. And I think there was a lot more pressure on the Beast as well, just as a scene, in that because you've already had three Mad Max movies, so we kind of know what that world is, that post-apocalyptic world. And we've already had quite a lot of film already set in that as well, because you can never get away from the post-apocalyptic world in, in Mad Max. It has to talk about the environment and establish that storm as a danger and all of those things, but it doesn't have to do as much as the Sicario one. That's the first time we go down into Mexico, so it has to, in one scene, evoke this. the movie is now going to be about the border country, and this is what Juarez is, and this is what Juarez means. And that is so crucial to the film because it has to explain why is Juarez dangerous? Why do all the Mexicans need to come over the border? What are they running from? And the music, it comes in, it sets it, it establishes it, and it's able to reuse that sound for the rest of the film, which is something that is not required of Junkie XL in his. So I'm going to give it to Johan for doing a harder job better. <laughs> Round two, female characters. So in this round, we're going to be talking about how female characters are represented in film music. Because both of these films have leading female characters who find themselves in what can only be described as a man's world, am I right? Yes. So before we get to these films, let's talk about female themes more generally. So in terms of like how they've been represented previously? Yeah, because I think one, one of the things that's sort of very important in terms of film scoring is that film scores don't exist in a vacuum, right? So when an audience comes to watch a film, it's certainly not their first movie. So... We come into a movie, we've all heard lots of soundtracks before, so we have expectations of how certain characters and certain things are going to sound. And as composers, one of our jobs is to 
be aware of that and work with those expectations because that's how you make a theme fit a character. So what are the expectations for a female hero character, particularly when you compare them to the male characters in a film? A little bit more subdued, not as bombastic. It's usually a little bit light, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more violins, strings, harp maybe. Yeah, yeah. I- I'd say that the cliches are definitely flute and uh, cello. Mm. Cello surprises me actually, because I always think of cello as being very much the male voice range in terms of an instrument, but it, it is used a lot in terms of uh, women's mm. women's themes in, in films, whereas male heroes in particular tend to be more militaristic. And brass. Yeah, lots of trumpets, horns, and military percussion, snare drums, very harsh percussion sounds. So what does that sound like and how did we get there? We'll, we'll dig back into history to the late 19th century, in fact, where we have two classic examples from Wagner's Ring Cycle. Now, it might seem silly to go back to 19th century opera, but the, the reason why we do is because Wagner is a huge influence on film music. The ring cycle of operas that we're, we're talking about here, which are based on North mythology, in particular are known for their use of what are called leitmotifs, which are short motifs to represent a character. The idea of a character comes on screen and you hear a, a little snippet of music that is going to indicate that that character's arrived. It's exactly what we're talking about with, say, the Jaws theme. Or last month, the Danny Elfman's Batman theme comes in every time Batman appears. So we'll start with our female theme, which is Brunhilde's leitmotif from The Ring Cycle. It's overly poetic, overly nice, overly, like, ladylike. Yeah, and for those who perhaps aren't so familiar with the ring cycle, Brunhilde is the sort of head of the Valkyries. So if you think of the the ride of the Valkyries... She's the head of those Valkyries. She's the daughter of Wotan and gets made mortal and she's put on a rock surrounded by fire. It's it's a pretty cool story. And compared to her, the male hero most closely associated with her is Siegfried. And we'll play his theme now. As we mentioned earlier, it's very brass-focused, horns, and very... It's a, it's a little bit simpler in terms of melody, isn't it? Yeah. It's just much more primitive. There you go. <laughs> so we'll move now on to a, a relatively contemporary example, the Wonder Woman theme, which I believe was written by Zimmer and Junkie XL. more like it yeah there's a there's a badass women's hero theme that you can get into but still cello 
but different effects, distortion, and it's played differently to your normal sweeping style. Yeah, so I think that that's where it's starting to really work because we're we're working within the sort of cliche, as it were, of using a, a cello for for a women's character, but we're now adapting it properly to the character so it fits a harder edged. And adding drums and a little bit more rhythm to it because at the end of the day, you know, women are just as primal as men in terms of have just as much capabilities in fighting their way, you know, when it comes to survival. Absolutely. And we'll compare that within the same universe and composers to Zimmer's Man of Steel theme. So I think that's a good example of how you can have sort of example of a more contemporary version where they're more aligned in terms of the the level of edginess. The the Wonder Woman theme isn't too pretty and the men's theme doesn't dominate it in terms of stridentness, as it were. It's almost like showing a level of intelligence, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. So what do you think of those as approaches for expressing female characters? So we've got our trend of... Definitely more strings, more sweeping music for women versus the stronger, more horncore militaristic for men. Well, if to be truly honest, I don't really think too much about those type of traditions or those type of motifs when I compose. I mean, I'm glad that how things have actually progressed. I don't appreciate when composers still maintain to those generalizations still. It's just it's kind of like it's lazy writing for me. So I wonder if we're going to see some of that writing in these films. So we'll start with Fury Road. This is Furiosa's theme from the film. You don't actually hear it terribly often. Junkie XL doesn't really use leitmotifs like we are talking about earlier very much. Instead, we mainly hear this theme come through in the second half of the movie for some of the more emotional, introspective moments of, of Furiosa. And that's not necessarily a case of Furiosa not getting main sort of leitmotif type themes it's just it's not really a feature of this or either of the two scores terribly Mm. much Uh, this particular theme comes through as Furiosa arrives at her sort of quote-unquote home and meets a tribe of badass biker women the many mothers
Well, for me, the theme really reminds me of Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. Yeah. And let's hear it quickly. It has that sort of similar tense melodic lines that are stretched with the, you know, the stretch harmonies, isn't it? And yeah, the orchestration is also very similar to the adagio strings, the layering of mm. of the strings together and the, the way that they flow. But it's unlike the adagio for strings, which is very uh, cautious and steady in the in the way that it climbs and and falls. It's very what we call stepwise. It has those large leaps up and down, which we normally associate with, with hero music. And if you heard, heard that on, say, a, a trumpet, it would sound very militaristic. But because it's played on the cello, it has that broader, sweeping kind of a quality to it. Well, the phrasing for me and many mothers I find really interesting with the pauses right at the beginning, you know, in between the note before it goes into continuous legato. felt like every now and again it gives you a moment to absorb what is happening. Yeah. Internally. It's know. good emotional emotional writing to a scene. Yeah, it's like it's like you're holding your breath in anticipation, particularly for the scene when she gets off the rig and she's looking out into the landscape and she's just like absorbing, trying to figure out like, oh my god, this is used to be my home. The thought processing all coming together and gradually it becomes as it as the cello becomes more legato and all the pieces are connected and Furiosa and the lit and the women they realise that there is there is no Greenland and it was all for nothing, all this anguish and all this you know frustration and the traveling and the trying to fight for survival gets released and the score really evokes a sense of struggle mm. and the need for release you know when it reaches that internal breaking point you know when she breaks down and screams and the, the music really highlights that so much you yeah. know it, when it's gonna goes more and more elaborative and yeah I, I think it really works it was it was very touching. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a shame that we never get to hear an action version of of this theme because I think it would sound really good as a big brassy or electronic or whatever action theme sort of coming over a big action sequence. Like, say, the, the Wonder Woman theme, which particularly in the actual Wonder Woman film where, is it Rupert Grigson Williams, mm-hmm. orchestrates it throughout the film that theme sounds really good as this sort of introspective, sweeping, gentle sort of a theme. And it also sounds amazing when it finally comes in with a, you know, heavy metal electric cello sort of a sound. I suppose what I'm saying is, is you were sort of saying earlier that it's disappointing that the, the female themes are always prettied and made strings and yeah. soft and, and all of those things. And Junkie XL unfortunately falls into that cliche. He does. It, but, you know, in a way where, and not necessarily wanting to defend it in that sense, but. In, in, a, in a lot of superhero movies where you've, or hero movies in general, where you might have one of those big brassy man hero sorts of scenes, even like an Indiana Jones or something, you will hear lyrical versions like this, where they're taken out of the brass and they're put into strings as they have a, a darker moment or a romantic an moment. moment. Yeah, yeah, an emotional moment, which is what this is. So let's move on to Sicario. So the first thing we have to say about Sicario is that it, 
if Fury Road doesn't really do the leitmotif thing through the the action sequences, Sicario just doesn't do character themes at all, really. None of the early scenes as we're introduced to the various characters of Kate, Alejandro and whatever the dude's called even involve music. But this clip now is probably the best one for... It's probably the only time where music really gets in to explain Kate and her emotional state. On the album, the track is called Balcony, and this clip goes along with her basically feeling very melancholic and broken by the experience. Okay, so I think one of the challenges with this particular piece is that all of the music all the way through this film has had that melancholic, broken kind of a vibe to it because it's it's a movie about broken people in a in a in a broken place. So one of the things that this has to do is really attached to Kate, which is why I'm bringing it up as an example for this one. What do you think he's done with this musically in order to make it sort of clear that he's referring to Kate's sadness as opposed to just everyone's sadness in the region she as a character she's meant to be there as an observer isn't she so she kind of is has to stand back and watch the action unfold and the the balcony track really has that sort of element of there isn't a goal and there is no resolution yeah you're just there unable to do anything about anything do you know what I mean? I know exactly. And this is this is what I was sort of hinting earlier of. This is one of the elements of the, the film that kind of left me cold in many respects in that Kate is is very much set up as being the central character of this of this film. But not only does she not get any agency, which is an interesting point to make, but her character doesn't really get to go anywhere. And, you know, I, I don't like being too into the idea of character arcs and those sorts of things, but her character just isn't really allowed to respond very much to things. She doesn't change over the course of the film. Like, she sees these really shocking... Oh, no, I think she changes. You do? Oh, yeah. I think because she comes in as somebody who goes by the rule book, you know, she's somebody who, like, we've got the rules, you know, we've mm. got guidelines, we've got policies that we need to, you know, in order to bring these people into justice. Yeah. And it's gradually her realisation that actually, to be honest, you need to throw away the rule book in order to... But she never really accepts it. And that I think, to me, that's her not really getting to go anywhere because she's never allowed... In most films like this she would be allowed to at least become happily complicit in the 
sort of dodgy bending of the rules to get to the result. But literally after this scene, Alejandro comes in and is like, you've got to sign off on this and pulls a gun on her to force her to do it. So she still stick- wants to stick to the rules and it's only that she- he overbearingly forces her. But then, you know, when she does pick up the gun and she goes back to try and, you know, then she points the gun at him. So there is an element where she's deciding, actually, you know, I can put a stop to this. But it wasn't enough for me. I, I think we, I think we're broadly in agreement in terms of what we wanted. I think it maybe gave you more of what you wanted than. than well, I know. I definitely, I saw more of a development. I could see her struggle, and I could see that. Yeah, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, that it's more realistic because at the end of the day, in reality, we don't always have a conclusion to our arc, is it? Not especially not in the space of like, I know however long the film was meant to be set in, whether it's a week or yeah. two days and stuff. In reality, we're still always developing with it. We still are part of a journey. Her journey hasn't finished yet. I, I, I prefer my journeys to finish by the end of the film. So, final thoughts. What do we think is a winner in terms of portraying women in music, in film? Are there any winners? I don't think there are any winners because you're kind of debating one where there is no theme and one where it's a very blatant theme. So it's kind of like, how can you judge one or the other? You know, unless you want to maybe congratulate Johan Johansson for kind of going a little bit more on a generalized sort of equal side by not giving anybody a specific not giving theme. A theme to anybody. Yeah. Maybe but then you- Mad Max really did need some sort of emotional theme to go with those scenes it would have been did it? stark without yeah them. but did it though because you know i'm sure if you try and put some i wonder what it would sound like if you put sicario's soundtrack you know over mad max yeah see if it would work because it has it, they both have similar sort of rhythms and use of percussions mm. you know so there are some similarities it's just that one was a little bit more produced I, I think the I think the Mad Max uh, because it has moments like that it does, and because Furiosa gets to have a bit more of a journey through through the film where she gets to go home, discover it's not there, realize that that dream that she's been harboring for all this time is not going to happen. She has to change. She has to change her approach, and she has to go back and take a different action and do something. I think that makes that that's part of what makes Mad Max a more satisfying film for me and the music gets to have that moment with the film so for me I'm going to go with Mad Max for this one you yeah um I am actually I don't even want to give a winner oh that's complicated Mm. I just say they're both winners controversially we have one vote for Mad Max and one vote split across both So, round three, action. So we've been doing this for our last two episodes, but we should probably actually explain how we're going about these rounds because I don't think we've ever really articulated it fully before. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be playing a track that goes with a scene from each of the films and we'll narrate along with some of the key moments that will happen on screen. This is good because it allows you to focus on the music and listen to how the music is reacting to the action on screen without being so distracted by the, the visuals. So for each, each clip, we're going to give you a quick overview of what's going to go on in the scene, and then we'll just talk about it as we go along. So we will start off with Sicario. This scene happens right after the Beast, actually. So they've gone into Juarez. The idea is to extract this drug figure out of Juarez, and this clip will happens just as they're capturing the guy. They're extracting their target from Juarez. 
they bring the target out with a black bag over his head. They drive off into the black SUVs. The special operations guys in the car with Kate get skittish. They're looking at every car and person with suspicion. We hear communications over the radio showing how professional the crew is. They get waved through the border and seem safe, but no. It's been messed up and now they're stuck in a queue to leave Mexico. So the double bass theme coming in there reminds me a lot of that anxiety theme that we talked about from Psycho in the in the first episode. It's a, there is quite a Hermanesque almost quality about it. Yeah, like one one minute and eighty seconds, like the cello, the way it's played is like a metal guitar riff. Mm-hmm. Um, which you can hear and like almost majority of the new metal music like from Slipknot or like Korn etc is that they have that sort of gruff grittiness to it yeah and so it's, it just felt like you know like a metal uh, like an orchestral version of a metal song yeah know? yeah I like that but sort of but a, but a more orchestral sort of a version of it which is interesting I suppose it also has a real Jaws sort of sound for it. it's, like, it's a good good hark back to our first episode mm. So we'll move right along to Mad Max. So this scene is right at the beginning of the film and starts with us being introduced to Nux, Nicholas Holt, uh, a war boy who's been called out of action because he's low on blood. He's currently getting a transfusion directly out of Max, who's hanging upside down, and who he refers to as his blood bag. Just be aware, there's going to be some bits of loud and soft music as it cuts to and from Nux, who is learning about what's happening of a Morton Joe's convoy from down in the cellars somewhere, and actual shots of a Morton Joe's convoy getting ready to leave.
we hear a dark theme as a Morton Joe's car is lowered down to the ground. But Knox wants to go and fight. His motivation is to honour their god, V8, die a glorious death and go to Valhalla. argues with his Lancer about being able to go out and join the fight. He decides to take Max with him mounted to the front of his car. There's a loud drum clap as Max winces at the thought. cut to a Morton Joe's convoy on the road, complete with big engines, flamethrowers and a truck with drums and a live electric guitarist known as the Doof Warrior, making the music unexpectedly diegetic. when a Morton Joe randomly glances at Nux, making him think he is destined for Valhalla. I think this is a great example of the men's sound for Fury Road. Oh yeah, definitely. It's very, it's very testosterone driven. The the guitar in particular, to me, it gives it has a really nice similarity to what we would call in Australia Akadaka or ACDC, as they're probably known elsewhere in the world. Particularly a track called Thunderstruck. Are you familiar with this one? Yes, and I have to disagree. That's yeah. really tame. <laughs> Thunderstruck is tame.
you were referring to just the riff. No, I mean, yeah, that combination, but the combination of the riff and then the, the yeah. driving drum beats, the bum, bum. Also, that, that is such an Aussie car driving song. <laughs> that, that I, I suppose to me I'm predestined to see that when I see V8 storming through an essentially Australian desert. That's just classic Aussie rock right there. But do you think it's something else, Ella? Yeah, when I was listening to it, it reminded me more of like Slipknot's negative one. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. It has that sort of like a little bit on the faster side. You know, it has that more gritty, more distortion, a little bit more. Normally guitars have six strings, whereas when, you know, you listen to metal music, they use a seven string guitar, which because they need to get to that very low, low, low. Oh, I, they, they want the deeper sounds in yeah. there and the thicker chords in general. Exactly. Yeah, which kind of. That's what, when I was listening to the Mad Max soundtrack, particularly when it was more guitar-based, that's what it reminded me of. And, like, Junkie XL, when his inspiration for Dirk was actually bands like Queens of the Stone Age. And I was going to say, because we're both wrong, well. aren't we? Yeah, because he's, he's going for a sort of more of a grunge, Queen of the Stone Age sort of a sound. Incidentally, Doof Warrior. Mean anything to you as a name? Doof? No. Is it an Australian slang? It may be. I... So I honestly didn't realise until the last few days that doof is a uniquely Australian term. I, I, I thought this must be a global term, but apparently it's not. So You've let your nation down. I, well, I, I just didn't realise it was just us. I thought everyone knew what doof doof music was. So doof doof music is that is like heavy techno type music because it goes because w- when you hear it because you literally go yeah when you hear it through the walls just going like <laughs> doof 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 and so we talk about it as being like doof doof music particularly in cars because you know when sort of guys and they're hotting up cars or whatever they're, they're driving down the road and they've got the window down like the big you know they've they've redone the stereo in the back and it's just blaring and they're just going down the street just like doof 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 that's that's what we're referring to and this is the ultimate guy's done the stereo up in the back of his car. I mean, this dude's actually got, like, what is it, six drummers on, on the back of that van actually live drumming and then the dude on the front with the... Oh, it's, it's just unreal. <laughs> well, the amount of times you've said doof, it's like I think it's ingrained into people's minds now. Doof, doof. <laughs> doof. <laughs> Got to turn that doof, doof down. All righty. So which one has the better action music? Sakari is a thriller. Yeah. It has its action scenes, but it's a little bit more on the lower level. Which one's music elevates the scenes more? The obvious choice is, yes, Mad Max, but I found that the sound design played a bigger part in the film as opposed to the music, particularly during those action scenes, because when I was watching it in the cinema, I, the sound design and all the screams, the dialogue, the shouts really overpowered the music a lot of the time because when I was listening to the music on its own I was like oh wow look at these like this melody or like this part is brilliant what and I was just like when did this come in you know mm. so it felt like I was in missing in the cinema you didn't experience that you feel yeah it just felt that the music gets lost a lot more in in the film compared to when you listen as a listener whereas with Sicario the music elevates it but for a very short while it's hard I mean 
I don't want to go for again for the cliche for the obvious choice. Mm. Which one will you go for then? My answer is probably going to surprise you because I think I'll probably go with Sicario. For Junkie XL, the the Doof Warrior, the Doof Wagon, is a huge opportunity to really like let loose. How often mm. do you get like a visual musical component like that in a film like this? I mean, Thor doesn't usually turn up with his soundtrack guy in shot in the mm. background. Like that doesn't happen. So that's a huge opportunity and a great moment of music in film. But you're right, in general, the action music in Mad Max, while the action sequences are amazing and the music fits it all and it's all dramatic, the drums, everything, it works. Almost any good action music would probably work there. It's not as essential to those scenes. Whereas in it's, not Sica- di- it's not different enough. Yeah, whereas in Sicario, it's very exposed. And that scene wouldn't be tense without exactly the right level of music. That's that, just that... It's it not, peaks at certain yeah. levels, yeah. And also it's never too much. It's never over the top. It never brings too much energy, but it's also not too subtle that you miss the details. It's always exactly right. There's a degree of difficulty, as it were, with the Sicario track yes. that Mad Max just doesn't. Mad Max has this huge margin of error. Yes. As long as he's got driving drums with those visuals, it's going to be a kick-ass scene. I agree. I mean, I that's why I was almost leaning towards Sicario because I felt that... It's a little bit more innovative, and it's just it was offering something different. And, it, and there's a lot more finesse. So that's two votes for Sicario. Woo! Perhaps unexpected. So in round four, we're going to be talking about production. Why is production so important for these two films? These two films are a perfect example of mixing capabilities and how music in the mix before they get mastered is very important because they create an atmosphere and ambiance. So when you talk about how this music is mixed differently, what do you mean by mixing in terms of music? Oh, I'll just keep it short. Mixing is basically like, you know, how you create the music to make it sound cohesive. You can either like record the music and make it sound clear, you know, so it sounds more broadcast ready. That's the simplest way. But the way that a lot of composers who are more, I call them like digital composers, they would use different audio processing to kind of create new sounds or like a new different listening experience just to kind of create a little bit more interest, make it the music, the track sound a little bit more varied as opposed to flat. If you listen to like previous classical music it's it's relatively straight i mean you can pick out where the string music is and where the piano is and the drums are in the mix but as soon as you add maybe a distortion to one of the sections it kind of changes the color of the mix so what you're describing with mixing is so we've we've recorded all of the instruments that are going to be on our track and then it's decisions around how loud is each instrument going to be where is the instrument going to be placed from left to right in the sound spectrum so the sounds that you hear out of the left speaker and the sounds that you hear out of the right speaker and then on each of those instruments whether you're going to add anything special as it were so a bit of distortion a bit reverb of and with EQs, and I find that like EQ. So what's EQ? So EQ is basically changing the high, uh, the frequencies, and boosting the t- particular audio track. I can only give an example of what 
Sicario does very well mm. is a lot of the drums, when you hear it to begin with, it's very at the back. It's very far away. It's almost like in a tunnel. And what happens there is you remove the high end of the frequencies and then you increase the levels, bring it back to normal and then increasing to make it get clearer and clearer. Yeah, because in physics, that's what's happening in reality. When you hear something on the other side of a wall, maybe getting back to Doof Doof again, mm the wall cuts out the top end so you're only hearing the low end sound passing through the wall so you're recreating that literal wall effect with the eq as exactly yeah and you're also boosting a few other frequencies whether to give them different spectral characteristics as well so these two soundtracks are perfect they make real good use of eq and mm. other processing but I will actually say, just as a disclaimer at this point, while we're talking about some of the, the more technical aspects, don't necessarily take what this what the music of particularly either of these two soundtracks sounds like in this podcast as being necessarily what the experience of this soundtrack truly is. These are two composers who use the full range of sound available to them in the cinema. They use all of the different speakers that you can get in cinemas. They're very advanced in how they do all of those things. And by the time we've compressed it down to the rather small format that we need for a podcast, we've lost 80% of their work. So I really would encourage you, if you like some of the music that we're talking about here, to, if you can, try and see it in the cinema or at very least try and listen to a high-quality version of these tracks through good speakers rather than the MP3 that you listen to in your podcast. Because, unfortunately you're not getting the full experience of these tracks. They're probably sounding quite muddy, in particular down at the low end, because you're not getting to hear the full depth of what they've been able to engineer in their perfect studios. So overall, what Sicario does very well is that 30% of the score happened in post-production where, you know, there was a heavy use of processing such as distortion, reverb, pitch bands, and EQ automations, you know, where the organic or like acoustic sounds of the orchestra was then slightly manipulated and processed to become almost electronic and completely become a hybrid and to the point where sometimes you don't know where the orchestra starts and where the electronics sound ends. Yeah, it's, you, it's almost you wonder whether they're real instruments or not. Exactly. They're so processed. And it's very well, very well blended with the sound design, which amplified the orchestral recordings even more so. Yeah, and well. I think as an example for people who perhaps whom this is a completely new concept of the idea of adding distortion and things over a sound, just think in, in terms of, of a rock guitar. Think in terms of what a classical guitar normally sounds like and that essentially the guitar you hear in rock, it starts off sounding more or less like that, but it is because of various layers of effects that are added on, like reverb, amplification, all of those things, that it sounds like the heavy rock guitar that, you, that you're used to. Would, would that be right, Ella? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know... If anybody wants to know what I mean by sound design, so sound design is the creation and manipulation of sound for specific purposes. Think about, like, if you watch a film muted, the action of what's going on in a film kind of falls flat, mm -hmm. you know, whereas because the audience doesn't are not able to connect. Because so you're referring to sound effects? or No, but sound design and sound effects is the same thing. 
they live like right ne- like with each other and they're all done in post-production because they're done in post-production it allows for more flexibility and you know deliberate decisions um to be made when it comes to heightening emotion or, or you know heightening um the surrounding sounds mm. the environment like for instance with mad max i don't know if you knew that the sound editors made the engine noises sound out of whales wow whale whales that's that's pretty cool. And they use sounds from bears as well mm-hmm. to, to kind of give them a literal growl. Yeah, to give the cars and the machines a real sort of unearthly, you know, unnatural growl to make it more machine. And obviously, they processed it, and yeah, it was fascinating what I th- they did. I th- yeah, I think that's something that people don't necessarily appreciate so much about film is that even rather mundane sorts of sounds like the sound of a car revving or the sound of a bullet it's not the sound of what was shot on the day none pretty much none of the sounds that's actually that happens on set as they're acting ever actually makes into the film the dialogues all recorded afterwards and definitely all the sound effects like cars and trucks and guns and everything were added on later on and that then when you do choose to add those sounds in that very deliberate choices are made as to exactly what type of sound to use so yeah you won't necessarily use the actual sound of that particular car and what it would sound like in the real world sometimes something like Sicario where you're going for realism you might but particularly for something like Mad Max where you're going for something really hyped up you will do yeah as you say crazy things like use a bear or a whale or something to to sound to replace the, the sound of the V8 yeah um, well basically the war rig was compared to the great white whale in the Moby Dick and that the whole pursuit of it was, you know, what, what was the name of, like, the Captain Abe? Ahab. Ahab, yeah, it's his, it's his pursuit of oh. the Great White Whale, the same way as the, like, I- Immortal Joe's pursuit of Furiosa. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Because both these films are from 2015, so they were both up against each other in the Oscars that year, and both were nominated for sound editing, and the Oscars gave their decision as to which one of these was better, and it was Fury Road who won for sound editing. And I'm not surprised because it was just completely, as I said earlier, you know, when I was watching it in the cinema, I felt really overwhelmed by the amount of sounds yeah. coming from the sound effects as opposed to the soundtrack. Yeah. So I mean, I, if you're voting for the two, you've got to, in that context, you've got to give it to Matt. There is so much sound editing going yes, on. Yes, and the effort that went into it. Like, can you believe it? That apparently the, the spherical that were, had spikes yeah, on them. Yeah, early on, yeah. Apparently they infused the, these sounds with swarms of bees. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. But that is like the power of sound design. Another really cool thing from the sound design in Mad Max, and we've got a clip of Junkie XL talking about this, is how having established early on in the film the sound, that sound of the Doof Warrior and the drums as being the sound of the convoy coming, he's able to then use it, much like in Jaws, as a sort of sonic indicator of where, of the oncoming danger. To, to Furiosa. So here is a clip of Junkie XL talking about how he uses it in one particular scene. Throughout the film, when we stick with Max and Furiosa in the truck, um, these guys are approaching from miles away. So we use these guitar riffs with the taiko drummers that sit on the back of the truck. And we filtered them down and we reverberated them and we did some really creative um, uh, mixing techniques when we were mixing the film. Um, to give the audience the sense that these guys are still about to catch up. You know, there's, we still hear them like the thundering in, in, in the background. So there's a really particular scene. Um, it's called uh, Water, when Max, for the first time, meets Friarosa and the girls. And we see that um, 
um, they're fighting and they're, they're looking, he, he's looking for water, something to drink, and he wants to steal the truck. And then we see in the background, we see that little bit of chrome that shines up in, in the sun, and that's the war party approaching. And the guitar player is in there playing those riffs to, to hype up uh, the, the army, so to speak. So we used all these type of riffs to filter down and reverb to make sure that we understand this, this, this thing is coming. And um, it was very effective. And sometimes you don't even you don't even hear music or something, but you just feel like it's a rumbling sound that gets closer and gets closer. Junkie XL has an amazing YouTube channel, but Mad Max was the pretty much the first film that he really talked about on that channel. He now has talked about a bunch of films since then. But it's if you if you're really into this and you're perhaps as or even more technical than Ella right here, it, it is a great resource for how he does things. So in terms of like discussing who is the winner, yeah, I think I'm gonna go for Sicario. Yeah, what makes you what makes you go that way? I think because Mad Max is a type of soundtrack, as I would compare to a pop song, where it's overly polished, it's overly processed, and there's a lot of work that went into it for the sake of it sometimes like I know like I've watched videos about how he, he used like a thousand uh, drums just for those he double tracks so much but it's it feels a little bit excessive you know when you listen to it it gets lost in the cinema whereas with Sicario it's a little bit undermined but and subtle but Again, the whole point, the mix of the sound design and the like, the orchestral music and the process, how they t changed analog music into making, combining them to make them sound almost electronic, and you just don't know where one begins and one ends. Much more creative, mm. and again, it's all about evoking emotion and evoking an atmosphere that I think that he does very mu more so than Mad Max. It's basically I'm I'm going for the contemporary arts as opposed to the pop artist. I'm giving this one to Sicario as well. So, moving on to round five, Legacy. Before we start in Legacy, we should probably explain what our two slightly different approaches are in terms of how we like to talk about Legacy. Yeah, so I'm going to be talking more about how the album works as an experience after the film. And yeah, so for me... Sicario evokes a lot of uneasiness right from the first cue and then it ends with nihilism, you know, when you're listening to it on its own at home. This is the purpose of film music at the end of the day, when you're listening it on your own, mm -hmm. as opposed to with the visuals, is that it's to affect the listener, to make him or her feel something. And definitely when I was listening with the headphones as opposed to listening it over the speakers, the whole affair takes on a new perspective. You know, as we were talking about previously in the production, you know, all the mixing techniques and the processes and the panning, you know, from like left to right and, you know, making you feel like you're listening to something that's coming from underground, like yeah. far away. It's That all creates an image and an experience as well. You feel yeah. like you're going more with it. It's almost frightening. Some people say that because there, there's no thematic ideas and there's no memorable hooks, there's nothing really to take away on its own terms. But I disagree. I think the way the stereo mix has been formed or created forms a real perception and atmosphere. No, I agree. With, yeah, I agree with you. And the, the track I think we should play to demonstrate this is uh, called Soccer Game. 
Oh my god, I have to say when I listened to that soccer game, I felt like like particularly when the when the cellos or the double bass uh, yeah. come in, I felt like this monster like I'm running away from it from this monster and it's like coming you know when you're you're running away from something and it's like this monster is coming over this big jaws uh, mouth is coming over you and it swallows you up and then it kind of carries on that's how it made me feel that me running away is it's just not gonna happen well i think we should probably play the clip So this this is really, really good music. It's complicated, it's nuanced, and I agree. Those deep bass sounds, the way it's they terrifying. come roaring through, contrasted with that high, I assume it's a boy's voice with this sort of almost religious quality. The way that it melds that sound that is established for Juarez against that boy solo and the electronic distortion that also comes in there, most film music never gets to really tie up everything from the film in, in the way that this does, and it's really quite beautiful and quite brilliant. So that's your, your thoughts on on Sicario in terms of an album. What do you think of it in terms of Fury Road? Fury Road is a great soundtrack and it's definitely a journey. It's it's like you're listening to like a rock opera, as I mentioned earlier. Mm. It's very operatic, it's very bombastic, like it's just so intimidating as well and quite relentless. I mean, it has a nice sort of your typical, you know, action versus more melodramatic scenes Mm. and stuff. So there is a point of like your highs and lows, you know, when it's very intense and you're like being pounded constantly. There's some good Um, contours to it, which normally we'd really like in a soundtrack. Well, the way I can describe or compare the both of them is that both of these soundtracks are very aggressive and abusive to the ears. And I know I'm using like negative adjectives. Well, they're negative and abusive films. 
So yeah, they kind of have to be. But in different ways, to me as a listener, in different ways, because Sigari, I felt, was more like mentally abusive because it really kind of gets inside your head and inside your soul. It's much more internal, whereas Fury Road is much more physical. It's like it's pounding you. It's more of an aggressive expression. It's much more external. And you really get that, that it's all an external motion. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great and it's still good. It's very relentless. Yeah, I mean, Mad Max is just insane. Yeah. Basically, that's the only way I can describe it. It's an insane journey as a listener. That's the best way to sum up Mad Max, really. I mean, he's mad yes, at the end exactly. of the day. So my approach to Legacy tends to be more to be listening to the actual sound of the music, particularly as it, as it falls in the film. So if Ella's a bit more about how the soundtrack lives outside the film and continues to tell the story. I'm a bit more about how it tells the story within the film. And I've already hinted at that a little bit in, in terms of Sicario in the way that soccer game music really helps tie everything up. And I think that's really quite amazing in terms of sonic storytelling over the course of the film. Fury Road is also very interesting in that respect. Junkie XL, I, I hope you'll agree with me on this one, the thing that makes him special is the layers, the amount of layers that he uses. He Essentially, he he's written with Hans a few times now on at least a few films. Yes, and it shows. So he's got that Hans quality to it, but the difference between him and Hans is I feel like a Junkie XL track has three or four times the number of layers that a Hans Zimmer track has. There's an elegant simplicity to Hans, and he seems to strip it right down most of the time. He, he does all sorts of different tracks, but most of the time he manages to strip it down to a relatively simple clear kind of a sound whereas junk excel will just wash with 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 sonic color he won't ever have one guitar he'll have 16 different takes of that guitar layered all around the cinema and he'll have underneath that various sort of rumbles and static and and all sorts of crazy things that's that's the junky excel sound that he brings the table i think that's probably a sound we're going to hear a whole lot more of in the near future as, as Junkie XL comes through. And I want to play a, a quick clip of a track he did for a movie this year, because this year he scored the Tomb Raider movie. And this, harking back to our round two, talking about female themes, this was his theme for Lara Croft Tomb Raider. So you're, you're wanting a female action theme with, with the brass and the full male treatment. What do you think of that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of seen and had listened to, you know, Junkie XL tends to kind of, he's quite well known for, you know, writing a lot of women-driven 
films and he does scenes. Actually, doesn't you know, he? he's done quite a few already. So he's kind of become now the go-to person to compose themes for female films. You know, that propel them. So yes, that is a perfect example, obviously. And Wonder Woman is another one. I can't think of a. There's another film that he obviously Mad Max Furiosa. So um, yeah, there is a pattern for sure. I mean, I don't know whether to start with this now or not, but. Mm. Junkie XL is very technical, as you say, because with his layering and stuff. And I find mm. sometimes it does get lost. I think he kind of tends to fall back on mathematics a lot. Oh, yeah. And you can kind of hear it a lot, you know. He says that certain things feel like a logical progression. And the way that music moves feels like a logical an- answer to the question that is posed. So That's a very Hans type of approach to music as well. Yeah, and so I do find that he is a little bit overshadowed by Hans Zimmer because his music is really referred to as Zimmeresque. It's like particularly if you're known for working with him, it's not particularly a good sign of individuality. Yeah, I mean, sure. there's there's creative inspiration versus imitation. Yeah. And do you think he's taking the Hans sound and elevating it to new levels or do you think he's just doing the Hans sound and adding his own slight spin on it, but really not not going anywhere. Yeah, because Hans Zimmer has the very blaring, horn-sounding, end-of-the-world-themed type music, but then so does Junkie XL. Okay. You know, so there are too many similarities, and because of their sort of input, you know, action music nowadays sounds quite generic. Whereas Johan Johansson, I find that his legacy... You know, in the way of, you know, carrying emotional depth, it's quite recognised. I mean, if you listen to, like, Arrival, and also there's another film that he did before he passed away, um, was Mary Magdalene. Mm. The way that he's able to hold on a note is very emotional and quite driving. Yeah. It's like, here's an example. If you give, like, Junkie XL and Johan Johansson, like, a set of notes to play, and you say, right, here are ten notes, make a melody... I can guarantee you that Johansson is going to be much more emotionally driven. Well, he'll probably only pick one of them. Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or even two. And that is the difference between these two, like sort of philosophically, is Johan Johansson is one of what what are sort of often referred to as the Icelandic minimalists. Him and Olafur Arnold and I think there's a couple of others. And he is. He's coming out of that minimalist tradition, which, I mean, to sort of give the pot explanation, it's making as much as he possibly can with the least possible material. It's repeating it again and again and again, and just through very subtle variations doing stuff rather than having lots of different themes coming in every five mm. minutes. I mean, for other examples, I mean, listen to Philip Glass is probably the, the, the classic. But definitely also listen to Johann, uh, to Olafur Arnold, who's another really good... Uh, or Arvo Pert is a, another classical example. Whereas... Junkie XL, I mean, if you can add another instrument on top, you will. So let's go for a winner. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's Johan Johansson. I just feel like he's got a longer legacy. Yeah. I mean, it's a tragic thing that he's passed away now. It's like just when he's just begun. I think Junkie XL has more to prove. So we'll move towards our ending. So who who wins our matchup this week? And it turns out that every round we have gone with Sicario. I am sure that's actually a surprise for many people, I think. Surprise for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, yeah, I think because we debated it and we kind of talked about it and we kind of really stripped them down and I find there was reasons why we picked our winners. For th- yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it's a, it's a win for Sicario and Johan Johansson. <laughs> Next month, we'll be staying modern but moving to the small screen. Yeah, we're going to be talking about two of our favourite Netflix binge 
worthy binge watchers binge watchers tv show which is breaking bad versus stranger things I will have to confess I've not seen Breaking Bad yet, so this could be an interesting, oh boy. interesting oh boy. few weeks. You've got like eight seasons to go through. Uh, I'm hoping I won't need to watch them all. <laughs> oh, no, I think you might. Oh, yeah, I no, might you want do. to. No you, no, you might want to. You have to because, seriously, the way the music progresses and gets and develops, oh, yeah, no, you need to. It's... Our producer's nodding. <laughs> the pressure is on. All right, well, so we can look forward to that next, next month. But now because... Uh, Apparently, this episode hasn't been sad enough already. We do have to end on a sad note. Uh, we hinted throughout the episode that Johan Johansson died in February this year, 2018. We both personally were very saddened by his loss. We definitely, as we've indicated through this episode, felt that he had so much more to give musically to us. I honestly believe, and this is not hyperbole or an overstatement, I honestly believe that his sound, which is so unique and so coming into vogue, as it were, could well have been as influential on the next 10 years of film music as Hans has been on the last 10 years. Mm. It, it It's so distinctive and it works so well as a different way of telling stories. And like Hans, it's maybe not the traditional cinematic John Williams type sound, but it's something that seems to really appeal to very visual directors as something that can go along with... Because obviously now we have these very CGI-driven films, very visual. A director has a lot more control of the visuals of their film than they've ever had before. So they engineer those to be perfect and they want music that doesn't get in the road of that. Music doesn't have to fill the gap like we talked about in Psycho and Jaws a couple of months ago of having to be the special effect that they couldn't do. Now they can always do the special effects. So the music often has to get out of the way and just provide the feeling along with the visual. And Johan Johansson, despite coming from an entirely non-film music background, coming very much out of essentially art music, just had that perfect evocative sound that was working so well. And it's tragic that we're not going to hear another three, four, six decades of his music. So to play us out, we're going to play a track, which is probably the one that first got him to attention in Hollywood. It's probably a slightly special one for, for Ella and I, actually, as we both first met at a sync licensing conference here in London a couple of years ago. And at that conference, a couple of very senior sync licenses, which are the people who buy already composed music and apply them to film and trailers, all of that, a couple of very senior people in that field from Hollywood described how I think one of them had actually basically discovered Johan Johansson when he put this track that we're about to play called Sun's Gone Dim from his 2006 album IBM 1401 A User's Manual to a trailer for a somewhat cheesy movie called Battle of Los Angeles in 2011. And they described how after this trailer made it into cinemas, the phone was running hot for weeks from other directors and other producers who were demanding to have that sound for their trailer because it was just so powerful and so evocative. And I think it's just a perfect way to say goodbye both to this episode and Johan Johansson because it just has a, a beautiful sound.
Thank you.